Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Um, really happy to have someone I've spent some time with recently on the podcast today, uh, Carlos Gallego. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, it's really good to have you on. Both myself and John have met you. Um, but I guess really for our listeners' benefit, can you give us a rundown of kind of where you started, how you got into IT, and kind of what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. Uh, great to be here. Fan of the pod, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. Um, so, look, uh, I, I got into IT initially uh, as a, after graduating engineering uh, here in Australia. I uh, did a, got a one-way ticket to the UK, as a, lot of, uh, as a lot of young Australians tend to do, and started working in the IT industry, initially in digital rights management, uh, sort of nothing to do with network security and the like. Uh, but uh, I soon joined a startup, a wireless networking startup uh, called Blue Socket, and I joined there with one of the co-founders. Uh, there was only two of us in Europe, so kind of wore every hat and uh, felt like it was a live MBA um, sort of for, for a few years. And so I worked up from being a, you know, a sales engineer to, uh, to a product manager of the technology there um, for many years, traveling the world, uh, which was a, a great experience as, as sort of a, you know, a, a fairly young person in the IT industry. Um, and then uh, I you know, moved back to Australia after four or five years in London, uh, had an idea for a software company uh, that uh, that uh, sort of realised uh, with uh, a couple of colleagues of mine, um, and uh, a few years after launching that, we were uh, acquired by Aruba Networks, uh, which was great, and and that's still where I work today, based out of uh, out of Brisbane, Australia. So, what um, startups, uh, you know, because people take different paths, and startups is one of those paths. What kind of drew you to make your own company and, and form your own company? Um. Pretty much because I got told no that I couldn't do it at the company that I was working at, <laughs> which is, I think, how a lot of uh, entrepreneurs potentially start. So um, this was the very early days of wireless networks, sort of think, uh, you know, early, very early 2000s. And back then, wireless networks were still very much seen as a convenience network for guest access in, you know, coffee shops, hotels, you know, around the place. The speeds were still pretty slow. But I think the magic of wireless was pretty compelling you know people the, the ability to sort of connect your, your laptops without any cables uh, and the like and so because uh, because the early days of wireless networks was a lot about sort of guest access um that was great but there was no actual way for guests or visitors to actually get onto the network easily it was a very clunky process of hard coding a username into the wireless controller a very sort of insecure way of doing things if you think about it right now um and I always thought there was a better way to do it. And, and to be honest, uh, I was actually looking more as a solution for myself because, you know, we're all guests on wireless networks at some point, you know, during our day, during our week, uh, whether we're traveling on the road at a coffee shop, uh, you know, a hotel, uh, as it may be. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of approached, uh, I was a product manager, as I mentioned, uh, at Blue Socket, and I sort of approached the, the powers that be to say, hey, I've got this idea to build this workflow to very easily register guests onto the network, give them temporary accounts. Um, and they said, you know, that's that's nice, Carlos, get on with your day job and and, and stop, you know, let, leave, leave the smarts to, to the smart people. Um, so I basically quit and uh, went and did it myself <laughs> um, uh, with some help from, uh, from some friends. Uh, it started off with very humble beginnings, kind of almost like bespoke software programming for a couple of specific customers. But um, as we sort of showed it to more and more people, you know, that I'd worked with in the past, people were like, hey, this is great. I want this on, you know, for, for, for my organization. 
Um, and so, you know, uh, with my co-founders, we we decided to to sort of take the step from you know bespoke software development to actually building a, a commercial product that um, you know that we could sell uh, around the world, and um, and we did so, and it was uh, very successful. I guess, I guess the question is then, so you got acquired by Ariba, right? Or the company got, not you personally. I guess initially it was <laughs> yes. probably you in your, in your time. <laughs> for our listeners' point of view, what, what does it kind of, how does that process work? Do, did you plan to be purchased? Did you reach out and actively try and find someone? Or is it kind of secret squirrel stuff? Someone taps you on the shoulder? Like, let us uh, give us a bit of information on like, that process of being acquired. Yeah, sure, sure. So, look, we we didn't have a very conventional journey, I guess. Um, you know, we were a, a startup with 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 four friends in a garage in in Brisbane, Australia, uh, not necessarily the hotbed of of Silicon Valley's technical innovation. Um, and the product that we had integrated with all of the major wireless players that were out there. So we were kind of a value add to you know the the Cisco's and Aruba's and Trapezes of, of the world that added this application that actually made the wireless network useful, right? Because it could easily get, you know, guests and contractors and, and, and visitors onto there. And so, you know, it, it was actually more from the ground up. So the, the reseller channel around uh, around Europe predominantly, but also in, in Australia, they saw this as a differentiator um, when they were bidding for projects, right? So rather than just bid on margin, because everybody was bidding the same Cisco kit or the same, you know, a Rubik kit or, or whatever it might be, they would say, hey, you know, not only are we selling you the wireless network, but here's this application that allows you to, you know, to, to sort of um, solve one of the, the key use cases for it. And so channel partners were the ones that really helped uh, bubble up the value of, uh, of AmigoPod, as the, the company was called, uh, up to the surface and you know uh, and and soon you know some of the SEs and, and and some of the technical and sales folks at these manufacturers started taking notice and say hey who's this small Australian company with the Spanish name that sort of keeps popping up in deals and and and, and makes customers uh very happy um and so we started getting a little bit of visibility uh on 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 that front um one of my colleagues as well one of the co my co-founders Cameron Esdale he um, had did had a lot of connections with from previous lives in with some of the you know manufacturers that were all pretty much based in in, in North America and in Silicon Valley, and so you know we just pretty boldly uh, approached them and said, hey, you know we're we're AmigoPod, we add this value to you know to your technology, and you know uh, we'd love to to work closer with you to build partnership. You know, in truth, we wanted to leverage their massive sales and marketing and channel presence, right? Uh, because we were bootstrapped. We didn't have, you know, VC funding or, or, or anything along those lines. And so, you know, um, as we sort of started getting a bit more uh, traction in, in, in the market and we started getting more high-profile customers, um, and, and not only getting the customers, but, but making them very happy uh, and making ultimately the wireless networks more, more effective, um, they started to take notice. And, and so, um, you know, one day, uh, so we built that up, you know, over, over the course of, of, of a couple of years. And then uh, one day on a Saturday afternoon in Madrid, Spain, I was ironing my laundry and I got a phone call from the uh, VP of business development at Aruba saying, hey, come over. We want to have a conversation about doing something a bit more than just partnering um, with you guys. And uh and, you know, uh, about uh, six, eight weeks later, I was uh, on a one-way ticket to San Francisco. So did you guys 
I mean, if you kind of, a lot of times an exit, an exit happens um, and you don't get to really pick who it's going to be. It, it just sort of happens. And that seems to be the case with yours, but other times there's a bidding war that happens. Um, and, and I think Aruba was a great choice for your company as opposed to some of the yeah. other vendors out there. Uh, but was there other thoughts of maybe, you know, going with vendor Y or X or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, look, we were we were founded in uh, November of 2017, and we were acquired in November of 2010. So it was a pretty uh, it was it wow. was only sort of three three and a bit years. And we we had the company, the bespoke software, for a little bit of time before that, as I mentioned. But as a company, it was sort of just over three years um, that we were we were in the market, and we initially didn't necessarily set out with an end game um, of, of sort of either acquisition or IPO. We were just, you know, just a few guys with an idea and, and wanting to sort of take on take on the world. And funnily enough, there was a couple of other companies that we partnered with that were not wireless vendors that were in, you know, in the IPAM space and security space, but that were all about sort of connecting and securing, you know, uh, users. And so there was a couple of, you know, there was a little bit of interest in terms of what was going on there. We actually were, our technology was OEM by Aerohive uh, at the time as well, which was a big boost for us in terms of credibility. And, and I think certainly, um, you know, gave some of the other manufacturers a bit of pause. So, you know, we, we had a couple of options uh, on, on, on that front. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, when Aruba approached us and, and sort of spoke to us about what they wanted to do, we we still felt that our product was you know really only 20 30 percent complete uh in terms of what our vision was for the actual product uh and we felt that at aruba we were going to get the opportunity to actually you know uh fulfill that and, and and sort of see that through um one of the fears that we had i guess with uh potentially some of the uh, larger organizations that were that were also interested is that they would effectively just hire the people and throw away the technology, which you know, which can sometimes happen, and you sort of get lost inside a bigger organization. Uh, but Aruba was the opposite of that. You know, we sort of had a plan from the beginning to you know to to build out the team, uh, to you know expand the technology beyond the guest access and BYOD capabilities that we had, um, and that certainly came true. Um, and yeah, we we sort of couldn't be happier with with how things uh, with how things panned out. So what was the next step once you were acquired? Kind of what what when you, when you get acquired, what was like the the three months and six months and nine months? How did it kind of roll out and end up kind of where you are today? Yeah, well, I think as both of you know, um, uh, the first few months are a, a complete whirlwind of a fire hose of suddenly this massive company sales organization uh, wanting you to attend a thousand meetings and conferences and presentations, which was a great place to be. And it was exhausting, don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, we are also, again, sort of you're suddenly in the middle of Silicon Valley. You're talking with all of these organizations that you sort of, you know, sort of only sort of hear and read about necessarily, you know, based out of a, out of a Australia and Spain as, as we were at the, at the time. And so it was very welcoming and, you know, everybody just wanted a piece of us, right? Everybody wanted to know, you know, about the technology. And, and so 
I said, I wouldn't even say the first three, six months. I think the first two or three years now were, were very much a, a whirlwind in terms of um, not only sort of telling uh, telling the world about our story, but uh, making sure that we had, you know, better integration and, and new features working with, you know, with with Aruba. Um, at the time, just after we launched, was was not very long since the iPad had been announced, right? So the iPhone had been announced for a while, but the iPad had just been sort of announced and brought to market. And so suddenly there was a whole lot of senior executives in finance and in other places with their shiny new toys that wanted to get onto what was then traditionally very much just a Windows only sort of a network. Um, and, you know, uh, our technology really facilitated, you know, bringing those onto the network in a, in a secure way. So it was a, <clears throat> it was a combination of, um, you know, going and telling the world about our, our technology, but also, you know, really diving into a lot of R and D and, and the possibilities of, of, of where we could, we, we could take this. Um, about a year after we were acquired, uh, Aruba made a second acquisition of a company called Avenda Technologies, which was very much focused on enterprise radius, right? So what we were doing was much more on the guest BYOD contractor side of things. Um, and, they acquired, and so Aruba acquired this, this company called Avenda Systems. Um, and effectively, I was, you know, heading up product management and charged with you know, taking the guest and BYOD contractor side of things, plus the sort of enterprise radius side of things, and put those things together into a product that could service across all of those uh, those sort of requirements. Um, and that was where the product ClearPass was born, uh, which has been, you know, a long-time leader in, uh, in the NAC space. Yeah, so NAC, we should get onto that. I mean... <laughs> I was a ClearPass customer back in the day. Um, I always found, and I still find putting people straight on the network is is something that concerned me. So the, the concept of NAC for me was kind of one step up from configuring ACLs or even in combination with ACLs. Um, we're seeing a resurgence in that kind of technology at the moment because of this thing we call zero trust. Um, yep. Security's historically always something we've thought about after um and, and i've told this story before that we never had locks on our cars for a long time until they got stolen we never had locks on our houses in fact or we didn't use them security has always come after for me any form of knack should be really implemented at the time that you implement the network unfortunately we didn't we didn't do that um networks have been around longer than that kind of technology has been around um, but what are you seeing from a, a ClearPass point of view? Is there being a resurgence because of this talk of zero trust, or, uh, that kind of thing? Is it more interesting than people than it was before? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, let's take a little bit of a retroactive, I guess. So I think, you know, uh, both Cisco and Juniper had sort of NAC products in the, you know, in the in the sort of mid-2000s, uh, let's say. But I think back then, NAC was literally just equated with 802.1x. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and, and ideally, you know, NAC is, is a lot more than that. And back then as well, you know, supplicants on endpoints were not very, not particularly good. It was sort of cumbersome to, to configure. And I think NAC got a really bad reputation because it just sort of seemed to be an inhibitor for people to actually connect to the network. And and by the way, back then, people were largely connecting to wired networks only, right, still, and, and wireless was still very much for, for sort of guests and convenience and, and, and those sorts of things. But as, as, uh, as wireless became more pervasive inside organizations, 
the very nature of wireless meant that people wanted to, you know, you needed to authenticate every device onto the wireless network, right? So switch ports were still largely just open. You plugged in, you got an IP address and, and away you went and you leveraged your Active Directory, you know, domain authentication. Um, but, you know, through the technologies we built in ClearPass, we actually made it very easy for people to log on to wireless networks starting yes with you know with with guests and contractors and byod but sort of expanding to you know to 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 wire uh, to enterprise users and you know we often heard i wish my wired network would work as easily as my wireless network uh, and be as secure as my wireless network which sounds a bit confusing because wireless networks weren't considered particularly secure back in the day but everybody did authenticate to the wireless network it wasn't an open wireless network the same as uh, as open switch ports so i think that you know through the uh, as wireless became more pervasive nac started to become more relevant on the wireless side of the network and then gradually sort of found its way back to the you know to the wired network for all of those devices and, and, and things that were still on there. So, uh, but if, you know, and in terms of the relation to zero trust, I really do think that that NAC and, and zero trust are, are, are very much aligned. So, you know, we, we sort of talk about uh, the first thing you need to do is is have no invisible connections from from a zero trust network perspective, right? And part of the technology in in NAC solutions, not just in ClearPass, but in, in NAC solutions um, more broadly, is the concept of profiling and visibility, right? And sort of knowing every single device that is just associated or connected to the network. Right now, connected doesn't mean you've got access to anything. It just means you've effectively got an IP address, and we know that you're a you know, a Windows laptop or a printer or an IoT, you know, widget and the like. Um, secondly, we authenticate every device that associates to the network. Again, so no invisible connections. Um, and then finally, the authorization, which, you know, which in, in many ways is the actual most important part of, of a NAC solution where we take into consideration, you know, the, the, the user, the device type, location, the posture, uh, context that we maybe have from endpoint security solutions or from other, you know, uh, parts of the, of, of the network and security environment. And we essentially place the user onto the network with a particular role or set of, you know, a particular role that controls what they can and can't do. And we, you know, we share this information with the switch, with the wireless gateway or controller, with the firewalls, so that it can then enforce whatever that, you know, uh, traffic steering, security, access policy may be for a for a given user. And I guess the final piece is, you know, once you let once you authenticate the user onto the network and you authorize their access. You don't just sort of stop there, right? Because devices may change their posture. Um, there might be a compromise event. Uh, you know, people might disconnect and then connect. You know, in in, a, in another meeting room or whatever that might be. So we're constantly sort of evaluating: has there been any change of that posture or authorization? Um, and taking feeds in from third-party systems as well. And if there has been a change, we can reevaluate reevaluate the the um, the policy and say, okay, well now because of this change, you no longer have access, or you have more restricted access, or or, or, or those kinds of things. And I think it's very very relevant to what we're seeing today uh, with zero trust as it relates to you know cloud uh, applications and SaaS applications and the like. Right? People just don't get unfettered access to these applications just because you've got a username and password that's correct shouldn't mean you just be able to connect to any any kind of resource out there so i think nac is back nac is definitely back 
and it's a great complement to what we're doing um, with, you know, with with SSD. So there's this concept of. I think we need of... some T-shirts oh. with that on, right? We need some T-shirts with Mac is back. <laughs> but anyway, John, carry on. I'll get the T-shirts organized. Yeah. You, you, so you will. Yeah, uh, you will take that one. That's great. Um, yeah, yeah. There's also this concept of universal zero trust. Or as universal ZTNA as it's called, the idea basically is to take you know the remote workers, the distributed applications, what's going on in your campus, and kind of meld them all together in a zero yeah. trust manner. Uh, there's a lot of work and a lot of things that have to go right to make that happen. Um, but I'm curious, has uh, that been a, a concept that you've heard? Uh, is it something that uh, you're actively thinking about? How do we bring this uh, kind of this concept of, of universal zero trust uh, to the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. Look, people, you know, are looking to implement sort of zero trust framework and concepts, you know, from the edge all the way to the cloud uh, and for users and things wherever they may be. Right. So, um, you know, I, I sort of often say to customers, uh, just because we have this great um, you know, cloud security capabilities with SSE technology doesn't mean that we should just allow anybody to connect to the network. Now, it's like, all right, we've got this security in the cloud, so let's not bother about any kind of network security. It doesn't sort of work that way, right? You still want to make sure that you know who's plugging into a switch port or who's connecting to your enterprise Wi-Fi. You still, you know, want to control the posture of those devices. You still want to, you know, control east-west traffic and, and access on, on, you know, on, on the local network and the like. So I think the sort of zero trust from a network perspective and zero trust from an application perspective you know, really go go hand in hand. And, you know, when we talk about universal zero trust as well, I think it's it's important not to forget all of those things that connect to our network, right? So again, you know, with zero trust, we, we tend to focus a lot about users that are behind, you know, devices. Um, but quite often, uh, you know, Internet of Things devices are, are, are less secure than your average, you know, Windows or Mac laptop or, or, or phones or tablets or, or whatever. So, you know, what we're really trying to do as well is, is, is provide that same sort of framework um, independent of whether there's a user behind a device uh, or whether it's actually just, you know, a, an IoT device uh, on itself. So we're, we're certainly seeing um, customers wanting to implement a overarching, you know, strategy that, 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 that takes care of all of those things that are connecting uh, to their networks um, and, and, you know, accessing workloads, applications, those kinds of things. I think, to be honest, when I was a customer, that was the journey I was I was taking, and that was the strategy I'd set out for the for the five years. It was really deal with kind of third party contractors and then enterprise VPN because I saw really those as the highest risk, and I, I didn't like the way VPNs worked. And then it was kind of bringing that concept of ZTNA inside, bringing it in and doing server to server kind of zero trust, clients to server zero trust on the LAN and WAN. And then I kind of kicked the can down the road and thought, how am I going to do IoT and OT later on? Because I knew it was troublesome. I mean, I was in a global manufacturing company, so I, I knew it was difficult. Um, but one of the things I think is worth noting is we talk a lot about SASE and SSE and, and, and Gartner have created these architectures and, and, and I stand behind them. I think they're valid. But we've said before, both myself and John, that SSE excludes on-prem. I mean, it's kind of made this assumption that everybody's gone home and there is no more LAN or WAN anymore. Um, and I, I wonder if at some point it will include that concept of 
micro-segmentation, NAC, the kind of zero trust on-prem. I wonder if it will do, it, it will start to include that, really because people are definitely talking more about SASE, talking more about SSE. There is still confusion about what zero trust is. People still talk about ZTNA as if it's the whole of zero trust, and they kind of mix up those terms. And, and I think there's complication around that and that and, and we need to talk more about what zero trust is as an architecture rather than ZTNA as a as a kind of product. Um, but I just I'm curious. And John, maybe this question for you. Do you think at some point SSE is going to include microseg, like internal, or do you think it will be a separate magic quadrant? How do you think it will be approached in the future? Because it's still a big risk, right? I, I think it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about um, devices accessing applications, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's going to include both the wired on campus and the wireless on campus, as well as the remote. It just has to. I mean, you, the 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 concept here is, is to create simplification. Uh, you don't want a lot of complexity where you have a a solution, you know, for your campus, a solution for your remote, so on and so forth. I think where the challenge lies is once you get into the data center, and I've, I've brought this up in the past, um, inside the data center, if you have legacy applications, re-architecting those applications, adding in micro-segmentation, it's a difficult proposition because the business leaders don't want to, uh, don't want to invest in there. And so uh, there's no real strong return on investment. Uh, from a dollar standpoint, there's a risk reduction, obvious case to be made. Uh, so really what it, it ends up being is, is transformation of those applications. Uh, that concept we've talked about in the past where uh, you treat your applications less like pets and more like cattle, and they become more ephemeral and you move them off to uh, the cloud. I think that's that's what happens in the data center. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my stance on it. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, SSC concepts uh, will include both that NAC on campus as well in the cloud. Um, I think there's another another conversation to be had, and I'm curious on this, Carlos, um, the future of wireless. So uh, when Jay and I started our journey back in the dinosaur age, um, everything was wired. Everything was a, a switch port. Uh, and then wireless came into the mix and it was this second class citizen almost uh, until obviously, as you said, the, the the management team got their their iPads and they're like, hey, we need to have connection here and I need to be able to do my work on this iPad thingy. Uh, and then, you know, wireless became a, a pure citizen of, of, of the networking sphere. Um, and then today, what we're starting to see is this emergence of cellular technology, 5G, um, and what that future holds, not only for wireless, but for, you know, SSE and security and so on and so forth. So I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, as you look at the campus and the other piece I'm going to add in here is how companies are changing their their work uh, methods. Uh, not everybody's on the campus. Emergence of the hybrid workforce that doesn't seem to be going away. What is the future of wireless? What is what does it look like if, uh, you know, Carlos, you're looking down the five years from now? What what will we see on the campus and, and what sort of technology should be be thinking about if you're a technology leader? 
Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great question and, and something that, uh, you know, uh, we get asked quite a bit. Um, with every, uh, uh, the founder of Aruba, uh, Kiti Melkote, uh, used to used to love saying that uh, every time a new G was invented in the cellular world, uh, it was supposed to be the doom of, uh, of Wi-Fi. Uh, we've been hearing this since 2G, since 3G, since 4G, now with 5G. Um, and guess what? Wireless uh, has, uh, Wi-Fi, I should say, has only just gotten stronger and stronger and, and you know, is, is very much the facto connectivity mechanism um, today. But, you know, I tend to think of things as, you know, as wireless connectivity technologies that are sort of best fit for purpose, right? So we use Wi-Fi, 802.11 Wi-Fi, sort of day in, day out, as do a lot of, you know, our home and enterprise IoT devices. Um, but we also use a lot of other types of wireless, right? So we all use Bluetooth, Bluetooth low energy for a lot of things. There's Zigbee, um, you know, a lot of home automation, not just at home, but smart building kind of uh, automation. And cellular has been used not just in public networks, but in private networks for, for a long time for a variety of different use cases, sometimes more special specialized than the sort of general Wi-Fi use cases. Um, but, uh, you know, especially with the advent of 5G and the sort of, you know, the the architecture of that uh, more open architecture of, of 5G compared to previous, previous versions, we really see a future where there's a multi-RAN enterprise. And what that means is that a single enterprise will have multiple radio technologies that are used by the people and by the things in that enterprise uh, in order to, you know, connect to applications, to transmit data, to do the sorts of things that, that we do, depending on the industry that, that you're in. Now, I think where the challenge and, and I guess where the opportunity is, is how do I take those separate sort of RF or wireless technologies, but provide a more consistent sort of a data plane so that I'm still applying my security services, regardless of whether you connect via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or, or, or private cellular. Um, and so, you know, that's something that we're working on a, a lot at the moment, be able to leverage those same sort of tool sets that network administrators and security administrators have to be able to deal with, you know, with effectively packets irrespective of where they're coming from, right? And so, I, you know, again, I, I see the future is very bright in terms of you know where how Wi-Fi is evolving, we've we've you know just recently uh, Wi-Fi six E has been sort of adopted. I think there's you know two billion citizens now have access to the six gigahertz band, um, which you know opens up a, a lot more capacity um, for you know for, for for wireless networks. And you know we're really seeing you know private cellular and in particular private five G you know, sort of taking off for, you know, a, a certain set of use cases that Wi-Fi is just not as well suited to. So we really don't see it as a sort of a, as a competitive um, approach versus, you know, delivering the best connectivity options um, for whatever the application or whatever the the, the, the vertical uh, may be. So again, I, you know, I think the future is bright. Do, do you think that the move to kind of hybrid work and I don't want to just say users at home because users are everywhere. I mean, I've yep. been on a, a number of planes over the last couple of weeks and you now get pretty good Wi-Fi on planes. You now yep. get pretty good Wi-Fi in football stadiums or concert halls or, I mean, it's been around in hotels for a while, but you, you see people sitting in a Starbucks or equivalent watching movies on their machines. I mean, that the movies on a plane I was on recently were delivered over Wi-Fi on a plane. I mean, those were things that you wouldn't have had five years ago, 10 years ago. Do you think because more people are now not in offices, is that 
pushing innovation. I mean, I know it's pushed innovation in regards to to security. We've been forced to become more secure because our users have moved outside of that kind of castle and moat that we're familiar with. But but do you think it's pushing innovation around? I don't want to necessarily see wife say Wi-Fi, but connectivity as a whole. Yeah, look, absolutely. And and I think certainly, you know, with younger generations coming through, you know, uh, the the expectation that Wi-Fi predominantly, although just connectivity in general is there, is, you know, it, it's almost more important than oxygen and water for some for some people, right? They're, they're, you know, uh, people, you know, if you ask a, 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 a bunch of, you know, younger people, they might, they might say, I'd rather stay in a, you know, in a worse hotel room with better Wi-Fi than a fancy hotel room with no Wi-Fi, just as a, as, as, as a very basic sort of sort of example. So, you know, look, I think uh, the entire globe is is really connected. You know, connectivity is is part of our daily lives, both in our personal lives as well as in our you know professional lives. Right? You you know, we all use online banking. We all you know access um, you know health information that's sort of you know uh, in, in the cloud. We we're all on the go, and you know, the second that you jump into an Uber onto a bus onto a train, people are you know getting their mobile phone and checking their you know whether it's to check their social media, browse internet, look you know look at stream a video, whatever that might be. So I think you know connectivity is now just uh, expected, and and I actually think that um, you know from an enterprise from an end user perspective for the, for the non technical users, let's say. They don't actually care whether it's Wi-Fi or 4G or 5G. They just want a great experience so that they can, you know, stream their movies or post onto social media or, or whatever that might be. And so as, you know, uh, network architects and, and, and security people, what we need to do is how do we ensure that we not only deliver that great connectivity, uh, but that we do it in a sort of a secure manner uh, as as it relates to our, to our enterprise uh, access. And, you know, that's not always an easy thing to do. And certainly as users have dispersed away from the four walls of our offices and, and a sort of, you know, uh, at home, bouncing around the world, whatever that might be, it becomes more of a challenge to be able to not only have visibility uh, of what people may be doing in terms of the enterprise network, but what's their experience, right? Like, so, you know, you get a support call and somebody says, hey, I'm connecting to Salesforce and it's really slow and not working and they're connected from home. How as an IT administrator do you sort of, you know, troubleshoot that? How do you provide a better experience on that? So, you know, and this is where I think, you know, SASE and SSE in particular provide some some great tools uh, in order to, you know, to, to facilitate that. Um, but look, I, you know, we're certainly spending a lot more time at home, uh, but it doesn't mean people aren't in the offices. And, and again, whether people are coming into the office two days or three days or one day, you still need that connectivity there, right? You still need that 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 security there. So I don't think that that's going away. But what I do think is that the the sort of you know the the more hybrid workforce um, today has accelerated a lot of transformations inside organisations. So things that you know before remote connectivity was a little bit the exception rather than the rule, right? Today remote connectivity is something that needs to be available because at the drop of a hat, and hopefully not we all may be told to work from home again for, for three months or, or whatever that might be, right? So I think that it's uh, it's been a real positive in terms of accelerating people that did things maybe the, the older and clunkier way, which was the only options available at the time, to a sort of more uh, a more modern approach to doing things, you know, based on, on SSE and, and SASE architectures, where security is kind of just baked in and, and the end user doesn't really 
you know need to think about it because again i you know i always say to customers you know don't put security decisions in the hands of non-technical non-security people it needs to be transparent it needs to sort of be be happening you know under the covers um and you know as we talked about a couple of weeks ago um you know security can actually enhance the end user experience when when done correctly i think one of the things that that I've found when I'm talking to lots of CISOs and, and over the last couple of weeks is secure connectivity is in the top three of their like priorities. It may not be number one, there may be some other priorities, but but it's definitely up there. And they don't even class security and connectivity as separate anymore. They are talking about yeah. secure connectivity in the same breath. Um, yeah. But that, that, that leads me on to, I guess, a challenging question is, Historically, security teams and network teams have not necessarily got on that well. We're not necessarily needed to work together on a daily basis, but we are, it seems, moving in a direction where they have to work day to day, hand in hand, whether that be from a securing a network or securing applications or whatever it might be. It's getting more important for security to be involved in every decision that anybody outside of security makes, whether that be in IT or, or even facilities, building security, all that kind of stuff. How do you think we are going to get those teams <laughs> to work? And, and uh, I know you don't have a magic wand, but how do you think we can encourage those teams to work hand in hand? Because if they don't work hand in hand, you you end up with conflict. You end up with the security going, you must do this, and the network team pushing back, or the network team going off and doing something, and you end up with really an insecure environment. So what would it be like your recommendation on trying to get those teams to work together? If you have one, maybe the answer is there isn't one. But No, no, I, I'm never short of an opinion. Um, so look, I think that the most important thing to do is, is remember who the customer is. Remember who you're servicing, right? You're not servicing the network team. You're not servicing the security team. You're serving your user base, right? That's why we're doing this stuff. That's why we're trying to secure the network for the users. That's why we're trying to provide better connectivity options for the end users. Uh, I think people need to, you know, uh, stop thinking that it's all about what they want because they happen to like this fancy, shiny new security toy from, from some company or, or the latest, you know, network Wi-Fi access point from some vendor or whatever it might be. And remember what that ultimate mission is. Um, and, you know, look, like with a lot of things, it comes down to leadership to set the tone, to set the culture, uh, to remind people that that is who we're servicing and that is what our objective is. Um, you know, end users are part of the solution, not part of the problem. And we need to work together to actually uh, make sure that we're ultimately delivering for those end users so that they can go on and do their jobs and, and you know, take care of patients if it's a healthcare environment or service, you know, uh, uh, financial transactions or build widgets in the manufacturing space that's, uh, that that you came from. So I, I do think that it has to start from the top. Um, I do think that the, the, the culture has to be set. Um, and, and again, reminding people of, of why we're actually building this stuff in the first place, right? We're not sort of building it for our own uh, geeky uh, needs uh, or interests. We're actually building it for our users. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it all comes down to user experience. I mean, we've alluded to this before on this on this podcast, and we've mentioned it before, that historically security has been an afterthought, and therefore any afterthought hinders generally user experience. I don't think we've 
ever truly implemented security with anything and it not kind of slow down the process a bit. Yep. But my, my opinion is if we start with the mindset of security first and we bake it into whatever we're doing, then even if it does slow down the process, nobody knows it slowed down the process because you're delivering a solution rather than deliver a solution and then put security in and slow it down. But so there absolutely. are tools out there now that will actually can increase user kind of experience and increase security. Um, but I think we're running out of time. I mean, we always get well, a bit short on time. So <laughs> one last comment before we get onto the fun stuff. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was I was just going to say that I you know I think that you know how can the network team show them that you know implementing these kind of network uh, controls can actually enhance the security, and similarly the security team might say, hey, look, if we provide if we go down this sort of security framework, we can actually improve the connectivity, the network, the the user experience. So uh, you know again, I'm a big believer that that network can help security and and, and security can help networking. Now. I'm not naive enough to, to 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 not understand it's easier said than done, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. No, absolutely. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you a fun question, and it's, rather than make it too easy, it's going to be about food and a food experience. And I know we've been <laughs> together recently, and we've had some fantastic food experiences, probably like in your top one or two. Uh, because I was present. Um, but outside of my presence and our food experiences, um, may, maybe give me two of your kind of best food experiences. And it's not necessarily about the food, but it's about the experience. Yep. Could be it was in a great place. It could be because it was with great people. But what was your kind of top two food experiences? Yeah, sure, sure. I'll give you two uh, quite different ones. So uh, the first one was a very short food experience. So uh, a friend of mine was getting uh, getting married and uh, the sort of wedding party and friends were uh, fortunate enough to uh, hire a catamaran in the Whitsundays of, of Australia uh, and sort of sail around uh, the beautiful part of the world for, for four or five days. And we were sailing between two islands uh, under motor and uh, one, of, one of our friends decided to throw a fishing line out the back and do a little bit of trawling. Um, and so, you know, in amongst a couple of beers, as we were going along, five minutes later, suddenly the, the rod sort of, you know, flicked over. And we all ran over to it and, and, and pulled out about, you know, about a 40, 50 centimetre tuna straight from the ocean. Um, one of the guys that, we were, that was on the boat with us uh, happens to be a professional chef. And so I want to say that within about, a minute of pulling it out, he was sort of skinning it. Within about two or three minutes, we had it on the barbecue doing a bit of a sear. And within about five minutes, uh, we were eating seared tuna fresh uh, out of the ocean. Um, it was a very simple meal. It all happened so quickly that we didn't even know what was kind of happening. Uh, but to me, uh, I still remember it as, as, as one of the greatest you know, uh, experiences uh, that, I, that I had. And uh, let me think, a second experience, uh, actually when I was working at Blue Socket uh, back in the day, uh, I did a, a trip over to Egypt and uh, I was over in Egypt and uh, the, the, the four or five of us that were part of this tour, we went and had, uh, had dinner prepared by a Bedouin family 
um, it just you know, in in their house, literally in their house, uh, the 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 women were painting henna tattoos on us and the like, and 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 you know, cooking this this amazing meal, and it was just great to be in a completely different culture, uh, you know, uh, sharing a meal uh, with them. Um, it was just a fantastic experience. I'll, I'll, I really remember that experience. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. Yeah, I've had the luxury of having food with the Bedouin, and it, it's great as well. Um, yeah. but John, over to you. Yeah, so um, on that line, uh, so you've traveled the world probably several times. Um, <laughs> if, if you have to pick a city in the world uh, where if you could go today and go there and eat, what would it what would the city be and what would the meal be madrid spain and croquetas uh my favorite spanish food uh croquetas it's very easy one for me john <laughs> you, you didn't even pause to answer that question he did, it was like he did. Boom, straight <laughs> in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Look, as as I think you guys know, Spain has a great variety of of, of food, and uh, I love the sort of simplicity of tapas and the variety of different flavors and and foods that you can get, which we, with what is you know uh, essentially a a peasant food. So tapas were created effectively as as small bites, very simple food for for, for peasants of, of the day. But uh, I can assure you that the tastes uh, are, are far from uh, far from simple. Solid, solid answer. And I'd like to thank you for coming on. I, like I said, I've spent some time with you. I, I we, We've talked a lot. I enjoyed your story. I think it was worth you coming on and, and talking to us so our listeners can understand your story. I think we've touched really the tip of the iceberg on some stuff, so maybe you'll come back again at some point. Um, but, yeah, I'd really like to thank you for, for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be on and uh, see see you both soon. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.